This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to the Impact Theory Podcast, your source of empowering ideas and actionable techniques from the world's highest achievers. Join host Tom Bilyeu, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of the billion-dollar brand Quest Nutrition, on a journey to unlock your potential and realize your vision of success. Welcome to Impact Theory. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Impact Books. Today we are reviewing Hitmakers by Derek Thompson. I really enjoyed this book, but I'm a little bit tense to be reviewing it because I think it would be easy to summarize it really briefly and it would probably be relatively easy to summarize in just grotesque amounts of detail, but hitting that sweet spot in the middle where I give you enough detail to really get a flavor for the book without overdoing it, I think it's gonna be a little bit hard, but here we go, here's my best take at it. All right, first and foremost, Hitmakers are masters of the familiar surprise. And while at the end of the day, this book really is about how difficult it is to predict the future, that notion of familiarity is one of the most empowering or powerful takeaways from the book. Um, a great example of this concept of familiarity is the Kaibot 7. Now, the Kaibot 7 is a story of a well-to-do aristocratic painter who was one of the French impressionists who was painting alongside uh, Monet and other people that became a part of the impressionist canon. And the fascinating thing about the story is when people really break down and look at what ended up becoming the canon and why those painters versus other painters that were... Um, popular at the time, why they end up being the ones that are remembered, really comes down to they were the ones, the seven, that this guy Kaibot was collecting. Um, he had the means to be buying art as well as be creating art, and he was actually buying some of the more obscure paintings from relatively obscure painters. And so how on earth is it that they end up becoming the most famous? And this is the perfect example of familiarity. So what happened was when Kaibot passed away, he gifted his collection to the National Museum, but he had one stipulation. If they were going to accept the gifts of these paintings, they had to hang them. And this created massive controversy, and people thought, you know, who is this guy to mandate what's going to be hung in the National Gallery? Now, keep in mind, these weren't his paintings. It wasn't like he was promoting, you know, hey, if you're going to take these other ones and you have to hang up mine, these were paintings done by his friends. So they weren't any of his own paintings. And in fact, it was Monet that ultimately convinced the National Gallery to take half of them. But in all of this um, uproar over him having the audacity to say that they had to hang these, these paintings got notoriety. People just became more and more familiar with them because they were caught up in this controversy. And 
merely becoming more famous for this controversy, when somebody would walk through the museum and see them, there would be this sense of familiarity. Oh, I know that painting. And that sense of recognition made the painting seem more important, which led into them becoming the most famous of the French Impressionists. And you get a very similar story with the, with, um, the Mona Lisa. The Mona Lisa now is considered to be the most famous painting of all time. And when people try to explain why it's so famous, the only answers they can really give are that basically it has the features of the Mona Lisa, you know, so you'll describe what the Mona Lisa has, and that's why it's famous, which really isn't very compelling. And the author makes a very different case, which is the Mona Lisa, and I actually didn't know this, but the Mona Lisa at one point had been stolen, and it went missing for like more than a decade. And in the time that it was missing, then people were like freaking out, the kind of example of you don't know what you have until it's gone. And because it was missing, people were in an uproar, it's a national treasure, and for it to be gone, you know, is, is just a crime. And when it finally was recovered and restored and put back into the museum, then it really began to become famous. And later, because of all the notoriety around having gone missing and being returned, that was when it took off in popularity. So it was hundreds of years, if I'm not mistaken, before the painting really began to get famous and later ends up being done um, in not mockery, but people painting um, versions of it with a mustache and Andy Warhol did a version of it. And that repetition, um, which started with it being stolen and returned and then getting um, famous as, as a replica of things that people were doing, that gave it that familiarity, which then makes it seem so much more important when you go and see it. And if you've ever seen it, it's a little bit underwhelming. It's not a very big painting. Um, and compared to some of the other brighter, flashier paintings that you'll see in the Louvre today, if it weren't for the fact that it's so famous, I don't know that it would have caught my eye. And that certainly is the author's thesis and that it's very familiarity is the thing that made it so famous. So the whole notion of people preferring familiarity is known as the mirror exposure effect. Um, and this has been replicated in study after study. And if you show people a bunch of images, but repeat some of them more than others, people will tell you they prefer the ones that have been repeated the most. Now that scares me. Uh, and the author presents his hypothesis that this may be it has uh, evolutionary advantages. Basically, if a plant or animal was more familiar to you, it was something that you were known and it hadn't killed you yet, then it probably was safe. So that familiarity gets baked into us as a sense of something being okay. Uh, and if you really want to get freaked out by this notion that familiarity rules all, um, then think about this. People often confl conflate familiarity with the truth. All right, let that sink in. People literally confuse something being familiar with something being true. And when people are tested, they can usually tell the difference between a false statement and a true statement. But if you begin to repeat the false statement, people, especially older people, I thought it was a little cruel to single them out, but if that's what the studies reveal. So especially older people begin to believe that it's true, even though when they were first asked, they identified it correctly as being false. Over time, because it becomes so familiar, they begin to believe that it's true. All right, that one freaked me out, but it's something that uh, certainly politicians use, the mere repetition of something 
um, ingrains itself. I won't uh, get myself in trouble with any specific examples, but I'm sure you can all think of some. All right, this begs the question to me, what role does quality play in all of this? Um, if exposure is all that it takes, does quality even matter? And according to the author, quality is necessary, but not sufficient. And the example that he gives is um, of the song, Call Me Maybe by Carly Rae Jepsen. It failed to break into even the top 20 until Justin Bieber tweeted it. And when Justin Bieber tweeted it, it goes on to be a smash hit, ends up being one of the biggest songs of the decade. But you can literally see Justin Bieber's tweet as a demarcation point in its popularity. And so, you know, I won't get into the debate of whether it's a good song, certainly a catchy song, that it needed that additional boost of the exposure regardless of whether or not it was a quality song. So you really do need both. And you know, if something's a great piece of art, a great song, but nobody ever hears it, I think it's pretty obvious that it's never going to catch on. So at some point you have to get it out there. Another important factor is what the author refers to as fluency. Fluency is um, thoughts, ideas, anything really that feels easy. And if you've ever wondered why thinking about some things feels easy and thinking about some things feels hard, which I always found very weird since it's just thinking, uh, but this comes down to fluency. And he said words that rhyme, um, words that rhyme easily specifically. So if I said, hey, think of words that rhyme with hat, that's very easy, has a high degree of fluency. But if I say, think of words that rhyme with strategy, it's not as easy. It has what he calls disfluency. It is perceived as being harder. And what's fascinating is something that has disfluency, even though, so let's say, let's give an example. If I said, think of uh, a movie that you like, and then I asked you to rate it. And then I said, name seven things about that movie that you like. Seven is just high enough that it will cause disfluency. It will actually be hard for you to think of seven things that you liked about that movie. And you will begin to confuse the disfluency, the feeling of unease that you get from trying to name seven things about it that you like with the actual movie. And so if you ask people just to rate the movie, they'll give it a higher rating than if you ask people to name seven things about it that they like. They'll rate it lower because of that disfluency. So that concept of really understanding um, that the ease with which something presents itself is uh, a big factor. And um, he brings it back around, he being the author, brings it back around to this notion of familiarity, um, which is that you're really looking for an optimum level of fluency. He said that it really is like, if you wanna sell something that's familiar, you need to make it surprising. And if you wanna sell something surprising, you need to make it a little bit familiar. And he gives the example of Star Wars really achieving that optimum level of newness. And he said, um, Star Wars is the perfect example of this because it was familiar. Uh, it was really George Lucas was trying to remake Flash Gordon, but the studio wouldn't sell him the rights. And so there's this sense of him riffing on Flash Gordon, that he referred to it himself as making a Western in space, that he was taking some of the imagery from um, samurai films, which is why all the lightsabers. So it was this hodgepodge of all these really um, famous story types and even referencing one of the most famous stories in the genre from the TV serial um, Flash Gordon. And so all of that, but done in a new way and really struck that, that ultimate balance. And then he goes on to talk about how repetition, especially in music, is really critical. And so you get the sense as he goes on in the book that um, predictability, familiarity, exposure, which really creates 
predictability and familiarity. All of those things are, are playing into what creates a hit, but that you have to really beware of being overly redundant. But this notion of what he calls repetition being the God particle of music, I found really, really fascinating. And he said the reason for this is that from an evolutionary standpoint, we were singing long before we were able to speak. And so things that have a musical quality um, tend to increase the fluency of something. So one of the examples that he gives is when you, um, like reading, writing, arithmetic, I forget the name of that, but when you give something that has not only the cadence of three, where they all start with R, all of these things, rhyming being another example, all of these things that create a great degree of fluency and people can actually begin to believe something is true simply because it is um, vocally beautiful. And he gives an example of how something that is repeated in a song, if you then isolate and play back, and he does this in the, in the audio book, it's really well worth listening to, where if you take somebody repeating something over and over and over, it begins to sound like a song, even though they weren't singing which is really, really uh, fascinating and, and definitely worth checking out. Um, so you're, just to, to bring it back, you're looking for that optimal level of newness. You want to be just surprising enough that people don't feel that it's too repetitive. And then another thing along those lines, um, words that rhyme are perceived to be more true. That's another one of those things that scares me. Uh, but nonetheless, things that rhyme, people consider to be true. Um, okay, so... At the end of the book, he's basically saying that predicting the future is almost entirely possible. So he goes on, you know, all the things about familiarity, exposure, um, fluency. Okay, that's a hit. But then how do you look forward and try to create that out of nothing? And he gives this really incredible example of the song Rock Around the Clock. And if you listen to it now, because Rock Around the Clock goes on to be one of the greatest um, highest performing songs of all time, one of the most popular songs, most played, um, did really well on the charts, but it didn't do well until the second time it was released. And the first time it was released was only a year before. And he talks about how the context of something really matters and that subtle shifts in context, subtle shifts in the way that something is presented can have a massive impact. So when the song Rock Around the Clock first came out, it was a B-side on an album. It was more or less ignored. It very briefly um, appeared on the Billboard Top 100, but then very quickly disappeared, uh, goes away. Everybody thinks that it's going to be forgotten. And then a year later, it ends up being... Um, in the title sequence of the movie Blackboard Jungle and then ends up being a smash hit and goes on to, to be one of the greatest selling albums of all time. And he said, nobody ever would have predicted that. Like nobody, nobody did. It had come out a year before and nobody expected anything out of that song and it didn't really do much. So the fact that people then try to go back and explain why it ended up being a hit, he said, is how people end up convincing themselves that they can predict something that they really can't. Because in reality, as context changes, as the what he calls the chaos of culture changes, one's ability to look into the future and predict what's going to work is, is virtually non-existent. And that's where um, artists come into the picture and really, in his words, are making something internal for them, almost turning a blind eye to the fact that this will ultimately be put out into the world. And when you get it just right, when the contextual cues of the culture happen to line up with the message that you're saying, then you can have a smash hit. And a great example that he gives is actually in the world of fashion. And he talks about how 
in the 90s, it was such a big deal to wear the huge logo of the more expensive brands and it really said something about you to be able to afford that and to wear that and to you know make that a part of your identity. But when the Great Recession hit, that really fell out of favor. And fast fashion, companies like Zara and H&M were the ones that skyrocketed to popularity, but people couldn't have predicted that that massive cultural change was gonna happen and they couldn't have predicted the way that people were going to respond to You guys know I have a very strict diet that I stick to, except for very special occasions, and I do that so that I can bring my best every day to what I'm doing, and a big part of that strict diet is high-quality animal protein and my go-to source of trustworthy meats and seafoods with no added hormones or antibiotics ever is ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a premium meat subscription service that delivers 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood all directly to your door. I cannot recommend ButcherBox enough. When you eat ButcherBox, you are giving your body the best possible building blocks to work with so you can reach your full potential. You've got to take care of yourself at a cellular level if you want to hit your peak consistently. So ButcherBox is the key. Sign up at butcherbox.com impact and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off, and that means you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com impact and use code impact to choose your free-for-a-year offer plus get $20 off your first order. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You will never be able to reach your full potential if you are riddled with stress and have a lot weighing on your mind. I can tell you from my own experiences with stress and negative thought loops, you have to find a way to work through whatever it is that's weighing on you if you're gonna have any hope of achieving your goals. Therapy can be an option for working through things and for an online therapy option that is super convenient and flexible, be sure to check out BetterHelp. With BetterHelp, everything is 100% online and getting started is quick and easy. A brief questionnaire matches you with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no extra charge. Get things off your chest, process through things with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash impact theory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash impact theory. In today's highly unpredictable and rapidly changing world, the smartest move you can make from a financial standpoint is to actually understand how money works and how markets move. Because if you wanna have any chance of investing your money wisely and growing your financial portfolio, you have to make a profit. And the only way that you're going to do that is either by setting and forgetting or actually understanding what's going on at a macro level. So whether you're a seasoned investor or someone looking for extra guidance, today's sponsor, Yahoo Finance, has got you covered with all the tools, data, and news that you need in one place to grow your knowledge base around what is happening in the world of finance and to make sure that you have the right goals and you're executing well. Yahoo Finance makes it easy to consolidate your accounts so you can effectively and efficiently manage your entire portfolio. Personally, I love how straightforward their platform is to use. It is very simple to get the information that I need and Impact Theory's own chief financial 
financial officer is exactly the same, spending time helping me frame exactly what is going on from a global perspective so that I'm making the smartest decisions that I can. I definitely recommend that you check out Yahoo Finance for comprehensive financial news and analysis. Visit the incredible brand that so many great investors use at yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. That. So you get these massive changes across all industries based on what's going on in culture. Now, he does take the time at the very end of the book to prognosticate a little bit about what the future of hits are going to look like talking about Facebook, talking about the way that we can now get real-time data about what people are actually doing versus what they say they do, and which, by the way, is very, very interesting um, in terms of people say one thing but are actually doing another. Um, and that's something that we see in the analytics of our own footage. Like, for instance, I know that statistically most of you will not make it to this part in the book review uh, because we know what the attenuation is of people watching and listening to our content. Um, so it's really, really fascinating. And what do you do? Like, do I just peace out and like wrap up now because I know most people won't make it to this? Or do I keep going? And it goes back to that notion of there is some element of an artist that's just creating for the themselves. And then ultimately he, he, um, sort of the, the bet for lack of a better word that he makes on the future of hits is what he calls the Disney method of total merchandising. And he talks about how there is this self reinforcing loop between the artistic creation and the commerce. And literally, um, this was so fascinating to me because this is literally the bet that we're making at Impact Theory. Our bet is that there is a self-reinforcing ideological loop between the creation and the ideological echo that people want to surround themselves with through merchandising. And hearing, like, I, even though I understood Disney, and that's literally been a driving factor for us, I didn't understand it as well as he presented it and how powerfully merchandising has driven Disney from the beginning. And I can't believe more people don't do this. And I will just tell the rest of the world, the part that you're missing, what Disney understood is their content fit into a very specific niche. People knew what it meant to go for a Disney film. And therefore the Disney characters represented something very specific. And that's exactly what we're doing at Impact Theory. It's about empowerment. So everything that we're gonna touch has to do with empowerment. So all the things that you're going to surround yourself with, whether you're buying a t-shirt, a plush doll, a wallpaper, or a toothbrush, whatever, it's all gonna echo that notion of empowerment. And our bet is that the world is swinging so hard that way and people are moving out of the fixed mindset into the growth mindset that that is really gonna be the bet on what's going to be a hit. So reading this book was utterly fascinating because it was somebody really putting um, words, really encapsulating exactly what I believe is happening. And so all the while I'm like, he is literally telling me that I'm not going to be able to predict the be able to predict the future. And I believe him. And yet I believe I'm right about the future. And he actually covers that in the book. And he talks about how you need to be just a little wrong at exactly the right time. Because if everyone agreed with my thinking, then everyone would be doing this. But it's because just a very few number of people really get that this is where the world is going, that I can talk so openly about this and know that we're gonna out-execute people and do it faster than people, but that we're just a little bit wrong. We're just a little bit ahead of the curve and that the world really will catch up. Or, and there's a great Scott Belsky quote, let me see if I can pull this up, yep. When 99% of people doubt your idea, you're either gravely wrong or about to make history. 
All right, after reading this book, I have to tell you, I think we're about to make history. I think that the stuff that he covers in this book is utterly fascinating and tells me that that is probably hubris and that my ability to predict the future uh, is virtually zero. But it is always the people that have the guts, that think that they are right there, right at the moment when the shift is about to happen, that place a bet, that end up making the next big hit. All right, guys, this is a weekly show. I am reading this stuff for myself, I'll be completely honest, but I love to put it all together and summarize it for you guys. I hope that you're getting as much out of this as I am. And as always, I hope that you go read the book. Uh, don't think that you've gotten even the majority of what he goes into. I, am, I have but scratched the surface. So guys, be sure to subscribe so you can get the next one. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Hey everybody, thank you so much for listening. And if this content is delivering value to you, please go to iTunes, go to Stitcher, rate and review us. That helps us build this community. And that is what we are all about right now, building this community as big as we can to help as many people as we can deliver as much value as possible. And you guys rating and reviewing really helps with that. All right, guys, thank you again so much. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care.